All right. I'm from the South, and when I hear things like that, I say it's like drinking out of a fire hose. You know what I'm talking about? You feel like that? I felt like I had to dry off a bit after that session. It was great. Lots of good stuff. All right, so just to uh, add fuel to fire, we're going to talk about another really difficult topic. We're going to move from politics to women in ministry today, and uh, we're going to talk about that. Let me kind of give you some background. I do think this topic is fiercely divisive for, for some reason. I don't know why it's still such a big issue in the American church. When you travel globally, the issue of women in ministry in the local church is not near as divisive, in my opinion, as it is in America. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think we have, um, and we can talk about this more and more as we get into the topic, but I think if if it weren't for women uh, in really third world countries, there wouldn't be a lot of local churches. I mean, women run the church. Women are the church. If you go to sub-Saharan Africa or if you go to uh, slums of India like we heard last night, the men are working in the city centers. So it's women who are running the church. They're teaching and they're leading. And um, I, I want to talk about this topic on a, on a personal level today because I wrote this little book called Let Her Lead as really as an open letter to my 12-year-old daughter, Callie. And I begin to think about the world, Scott, that she's going to grow up in. I'm the pastor of a church. I have a congregation that I'm leading and she's growing up here in, in, at New Life, and, we'll, and I will spend most of my career here, and Callie will grow up and be a grown woman here at this church. And I wondered, what kind of church is she growing up in? What is she hearing from me? What is she, uh, what is she witnessing by watching the local church be led? Is, is, does she feel like that she can be her, that she can be herself? Because I think a lot of women who really have a desire to be in ministry don't see an option. They have to become something other than they are in order to, get, to work their way to the front of the line to get noticed, or they're just ignored altogether. And that bothers me, and it's bothering me more and more as my daughter's getting older. It's always bothered me. But I, um, so that, that was one catalyst that started this conversation in my own heart and among close friends. And then a the second thing that happened, I was, last summer I spent some time with Eugene Peterson on his back porch at... Flathead Lake in Montana, and Eugene was telling me the story of, of his mother. When Eugene was just a young boy, his mother would go out into these backwoods uh, mining camps where they were mining timber, and she just had this compassion to preach and to encourage and to, to pastor these loggers, and none of the other men pastors would go out in the middle of nowhere, so she would put little Eugene on the wagon with her or in the truck with her, and go out on Sunday nights and just uh, find some mining camp and find a place where the men were gathered. And she would go in and tell them stories of the Bible. And she was this prolific storyteller of the Bible. She would just tell fascinating stories of the scriptures. And Eugene would be on the front row listening to his mother tell these compelling biblical stories. And he said it, it was where his, his imagination as a pastor began to be formed. And his, his imagination for preaching and leading and teaching began to be formed by listening to his mother. And these miners would come to Christ. They would come to faith, you know, and give their life to Christ and be, begin being discipled and all those things. The church would be formed out in the middle of these mining camps. Until one day she came home and uh, her pastor in this little town they were living in in Montana, she told her pastor about it and said, you know, what she was doing on Sunday nights. And he said, you can't do that. She said, I can't. No, you can't do that. It's very clear in the scriptures. Women can't teach. Women can't, are not supposed to be heard in church. Because he read it, and he's a, he's a literalist. You know, he interpreted the scriptures literally, and that was to her. Her pastor said no, and from that moment on, she never preached another sermon. And so for all those years later, Eugene says one of the things that caused him the most grief as a pastor, that he didn't take a greater stand on this topic and talk about it more openly and talk about these troublesome Scriptures. So I'm going to read out loud some troublesome scriptures. Now, let me just give you a background. Uh, when I was researching for the book, I'd already read Blue Parakeet. I really enjoyed his Scott's book on uh, called The Blue Parakeet. Could you just give us a quick, I know people are wondering, why did you call it The Blue Parakeet? Could you tell us a real quick story why you named the book Blue Parakeet? I was sitting on my back. Am I on? Am I on? Okay. I was sitting on my back porch. Um, uh, reading a boring book, and uh, as a bird watcher, I happened to observe on the fence in our yard a blue bird in a bush. And because I'm a bird watcher, uh, and anybody who is a bird watcher knows the same experience, 
I instantaneously went through the marks of identification. That's what we do. I knew how tall it was, etc. But the color was confusing to me, and I couldn't tell if it was a blue jay, but it was too small to be a blue jay. And then I wondered if it was an eastern bluebird, but eastern bluebirds aren't in neighborhoods. They're in prairies, and they wouldn't have quite that color of blue. And then I wondered if it was a mountain bluebird uh, from Colorado, a stray in Chicago. And I thought, that's a stupid idea. They're not here. <laughs> it wasn't an indigo bunting because of the size and color. And then as I was going through those marks, the little bird hopped out on my fence, and it was a, my neighbor's blue parakeet. Well, I watched this for a while. I watched the bird, and the reason the story works is I learned all about how my sparrows treat strange birds when they show up in the neighborhood because they thought it was a terrorist. They were scared to death of this blue parakeet. So uh, I learned about this, and then I, I use this as an analogy that when we're reading the Bible and we encounter a passage that doesn't fit our theology... We've had a blue parakeet moment. And we can either welcome it into the family or we can shoo it away. And a lot of people shoo them away. And one of the most significant collection of blue parakeet passages in the Bible are are passages about women doing things that they don't get to do in the church today. And there we are. And let me read a couple of them to you because I know you're already thinking We didn't plan that segue. No, that was great, though. Uh, let me read one to you because you're already thinking about these, this troublesome text. 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about women not, you know, uh, you got to have your head covered to do anything in the church. If you don't have your head covered, you're dishonoring her head and everything else. 1 Corinthians 14, now listen to this troublesome text. This is a blue parakeet text for a lot of people. When I, when I talk about having women, you like Pastor Yvette, she's a pastor on our staff. She does weddings, funerals. She's preached for me on Sunday. She's involved in almost every decision of our local church. She's right here on the front row. But when, when we began having these discussions, these were the scriptures that people brought to me as if I had not read them. And um, <laughs> so I need to get one of those New Testaments, you know? <laughs> First Corinthians... <laughs> I, pastors always feel that. You know, pastors feel, we, I spend, most of us spend 10 to 20 hours a week on a sermon. And it's, one of them, this is a total aside, but so aggravating when people walk up to you and they've heard it for 30 minutes. And they are so, such an expert on the text that they've done no study on. It's so aggravating, right? It's one of those troublesome pastor vocational things. All right, All right so here's a troublesome text. Listen to this text. Read this. with First uh, Corinthians 14, verse 33. In all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is, it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All right, so where do we, where do we start here with this troublesome text? Uh, you're the... You're the New Testament scholar, and your explanation and your exegetical look at this. I mean, it was, I, I, it was fascinating to me. I'd heard so many explanations of this passage before. This is out of the NIV. I don't know which, which one you prefer. Which, what, do you, what do you prefer to read out of? Um, I use the uh, NIV 2011. Okay. This is like the 1970 or whatever, 84 or whatever. 84? Yeah, 84, yeah. I think uh, so. <laughs> We've advanced a lot since then, though. All right, so when people bring this to you and say, women's got to read 1 Corinthians 14, Paul, the writer, obviously. What do you make of this troublesome blue parakeet text when we're talking about women having a voice in the local church? I ask them how much time they have. We have, it's 11.06, and we have about (laughs) 54 minutes, so. (laughs) Well, this is a complex one for a couple of reasons. If you read your Bible carefully and you read the footnotes, you will know that there's a footnote that says, in a few manuscripts, these verses come after verse 40. Well, that's interesting that there is evidence in the early manuscripts that these verses were not where they are now. They were somewhere else. That sort of clue is an indication that these verses very, may very well never have been written by Paul, but were brought in, were added later. 
and they have found their way into our Bible because they found their way into the King James Bible. If it's in the King James, it's you lose. Now Try you're starting a big fight here, okay? Now, right. <laughs> but, but so that's that's a, that's one clue. So there's something here, and when I wrote Blue Parakeet, I chose to to not debate this. I personally don't think Paul wrote these verses. I don't think they were written by Paul, and I'm uh, I stand with hundreds of experts on textual criticism. That, and that is people who examine manuscripts, ancient Greek manuscripts that were 3rd and 4th and 5th century. All right? So I stand with them. But let's just say, all right, it's in the Bible. Now what are we going to do? There's a couple things that happen here that are weird. All right? The first one is this. It says they must be in submission as the law says. There is no law in the Bible that says women have to be submissive. So where that came from, no one knows. It's not in the law of Moses. It's not in the law of Moses. It's not. Paul didn't write law. All right. So there's no way that there's there's something going on here that's a little strange. But even more important, how can Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14 that women have to be silent when in 1 Corinthians 11? Women are praying in public and prophesying in public. Okay. Now, what I've tried to do is muddy the waters enough for you to say, what's your explanation? My explanation first is I doubt that Paul wrote these, uh, these words. The second explanation is there is no way that silent, if Paul wrote them, there is no way that silent means total silent. So this is a very restricted silence for Paul. This is not total silence in the church. Uh, this is, at best, a reduced silence. And uh, a number of people would connect this silence to the evaluating of prophecies or tongues that have emerged in this chapter. So, now here's the other thing, just in case you're a little curious about pleated pants kinds of people who are removing verses from your Bible. Okay? Um, When you say the Lord's Prayer, you probably finish with these words. For thine, and and you know Jesus spoke in King James English. (laughs) For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. All right? If you read... Uh, your footnotes in your Bible, you'll know that almost all modern translations have removed those verses because it wasn't said by Jesus. It was added in the 8th century by people who had read 1 Chronicles 29.11 and thought that was a good way to end the Lord's Prayer in public worship because you just end otherwise. It just stops. You need an amen. All right? So you read Matthew 23.14 or verse 15. And there's uh, verse 14. There's, it's gone. You go from 13 to 15. It's gone. There's a number of texts like this. So because we Christians care about our Bibles, we have combed through churches throughout the world to find manuscripts. And we have found there are marvelous stories of the discovery of manuscripts, like Constantine Lobogot. Lobogot Constantine von Tischendorf got to Mount to St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai, and the old abbot says to him, I've got an old manuscript here you might want to look at. Tischendorf, in search of manuscripts with a pith helmet on, you know, you can see him in the 19th century, realizes in his hands is the oldest copy of a complete New Testament he has ever seen, and that exists in the world. He realized it was from, it's called an uncial script. It was written in a Greek way that he knew it was from the 3rd or the 4th century. The whole New Testament, wrapped in a red cloth. So Tischendorf says in his diary, out of reverence, chose not to sleep, and he read the entire manuscript over the night. Just because it was, he said it was a sacrilege, to sleep. 
Now, he's he's a German in search of manuscripts at an Orthodox monastery, and he wants... He doesn't want to tip off his hat. He wants to buy that thing. So he casually says to the guy, you got any more manuscripts? And the abbot says, we had some last winter, but it was cold, so we used it to stoke the fires. Uh. (laughs) Tischendorf eventually got it, and that manuscript is sitting in British Museum, and I've seen it. It's called Codex Sinaiticus. What I'm saying is we find manuscripts and then we read them and then we compare them. And we've been able to compare manuscripts, 30,000 different kinds of manuscripts for the New Testament with the result that we have very good confidence that the manuscripts and all the evidence that we can reconstruct an early copy of the manuscript of the New Testament. And 1 Corinthians 14 probably wasn't there. Now that doesn't solve our problem. But at least you just added one of the a, you added about a half dozen to the problem list there, but that's good. I love that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a professor. That's really helpful though for people to understand. I'm, I don't mean this again. I love this. We love the scriptures. We love the scriptures. The scriptures are life giving, breathing. We, we we know all those things, but the scriptures are not the third part of the Trinity. Yeah. We want to be. We want Jesus to be the center, and so. One of, the, one of the points you made in your book is that we have to go back to, to the teachings of Jesus before we read Paul. Paul doesn't yeah. trump Jesus. Jesus trumps Paul. So when you read things like this, where Paul is saying women be silent in the church, it doesn't line up at all with what Jesus came to do to the world of woman. If you look at what Jesus did to liberate the voice of woman in, in the Gospels, would you agree that Jesus was the best thing that ever happened to a woman in the, in the history of the world as far as liberating her voice. Would you agree or disagree with that? Okay, well, let me back up one statement first. Every word in your Bible is the result of textual critics determining and judging whether that word was the earliest word there. Every word. So it's all the result. All right. Brady, uh, this is a difficult one uh, on Jesus and women. Uh, I think, as a rule, that we as Christians have done a disservice to Judaism and made women in Judaism look bad so that Jesus looks good. And as a result, we've distorted some things. Now, here's the remarkable thing about, and I agree with you that first Jesus, then the apostles. So I'm, we're on the same page. Uh, there is not a record of anything Jesus said or did with women that disturbed anyone in his environment. It's really remarkable. It certainly disturbed the Romans and the Greeks because their view of women was more property. Women were given no voting rights. Women couldn't be a witness. I, in court. I would say that's probably true, but no one criticizes Jesus' behavior with women. Uh, and no one is really criticizing the church's behavior with women. So I, I think that we, we don't need to, to make Jews or Greeks or Romans look bad so we look good. We just need to say what's in the Bible. And I, I don't think there's any question that there were Jews, Greeks, and Romans whose attitudes and, and dispositions toward women were awful and violent and hierarchical. But there were a lot of Roman women who were liberated, and nobody was up in arms about it. So Jesus' uh, posture toward women is he has women who are a part of his entourage, Luke 8, 1 through 3. It's pretty remarkable. And there are women from, who shouldn't be there, you know, from Herod's household. Women who've been, exorcisms have been performed, seven demons out of Mary Magdalene. Why is he hanging out with people like this? That is what Jesus was about. He included and redeemed and liberated people and... Uh, took them out of their world and gave them a whole new kingdom world. So go back, go back to the, let's go back to the first, this is what people, people, the question I get asked, especially after I wrote this little book was, then what did women do in the first century church? What, what would you, if we could be transported back to an early church gathering, what would, what would, where would women have, because the Corinthian church, apparently there was something going on in this Corinthian church where the scriptures are, if we read this, something was being there was a confusion about yeah. the role of women. We can best say I, that. I think First Timothy is the one that clarifies what was yep. going on. At All right, this is you read it for you. First Timothy yeah. two. Yeah. You're talking about First Timothy yeah. two. Put this on the screen. First Timothy two, verse twelve. I do not. This is again Paul writing it supposedly. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. 
For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So there's Paul again, or is that Paul? I think Paul, I think Paul wrote these letters. I don't know how many letters Paul sat down with a pen and wrote, uh, because I mean, at the end of Galatians, he says, now you can see the big letters and that maybe is, so the average Jew, only 10% of Jews could read, very few could write. So Paul could read whether he could write, probably not a great writer. All right. When Paul says this about women, uh, we have to read it in the context of the Bible. All right. And in the context of the Bible, um, there are all kinds of indications of women doing powerful, dynamic things. And I'd like to, if it's okay, I'd like to kind of go through some representative women in the Bible. At the heart of the Exodus is the liberation of the children of Israel from Egypt. To interpret that event is to clarify for Israel what God is doing. Who interpreted it? Miriam. The horse and a rider and her song in Exodus 15. Miriam becomes the canonical canonical base of interpretation of the Exodus, the most significant event of the Old Testament. In Judges, we read about a woman named Deborah. Deborah, the way I put her together, is she's Schwarzkopf, (laughs) Mother Teresa, and... uh, a Supreme Court justice all rolled into one body. She was a woman who delighted in the defeat of her enemies. Uh, The Germans call this schadenfreude, joy in the misery of others. It's a great German word, schadenfreude. Deborah is is the interpreter. She's the judge. She's the military leader. She's the political leader. She is everything to the nation of Israel, the people of God. Now, if we allow, and she's not condemned for anything she does. It's not because there's no men available. You know, there are men. They're all over the place. Dumb. Uh, But they're not involved. And so God chooses her to be the judge of Israel, a great opportunity. The next woman that we have to know about is a woman we know we rarely mention is Huldah, who is a prophetess. And when, when Josiah discovers the book of the law, he chooses one person to interpret what God is doing here, and he chooses over Jeremiah and other prophets in the Bible a woman named Huldah. She's a prophetess, and she's the leader of Israel. Those are three powerful women. What about Esther? What about Ruth? Significant. What about Sarah? These are powerful figures in the history of the Bible. This is our story. So whenever women emerge in the New Testament, we've got Mary, uh, who who makes Protestants break out in a rash. (laughs) Except at Christmas. We roll her up in a, we roll out the creche and we put her in, on January 1st, we pat her on the bottom and we tell her to go away. Is that right? My, my mother one time asked me what I was writing. I said, I'm writing something on Mary. Bless her heart. My mother said, why? <laughs> Wait to hear what she said next. She's Roman Catholic. <laughs> I said, Mom, she's the mother of Jesus. She said, well, you know what I mean. <laughs> so Mary figures prominently Elizabeth. The mother of John the Baptist figures prominently. Women in the ministry of Jesus figure prominently. And in the first Pentecostal experience of the church in Acts 1, Mary's right in the middle of it. She's there. Don't think she's not. Don't skip over Acts 1.14. She's right there. So all of a sudden now we got women in the church. And Paul's telling them to be silent? It's impossible. I don't mean that you can't keep women... Quiet. Nice rebound. Very nice. I did not say that. No, I didn't. It, it cannot mean that women are not permitted to speak in the context of religious gatherings. 
Impossible because in Jewish history, we have all these other women. What are you going to do with Priscilla? Who taught Apollos the scripture. It didn't say she taught only because she had her husband, Aquila, with her. She taught, it says. Not only that, when Paul, when Acts describes, uh, when they talk about Priscilla and Aquila, her name is almost always first because she was more prominent. And that could be because of money or status in the church. I suspect it was status in the church. But there's no reason to get dogmatic. So all of a sudden now, we got women who are uh, prophesying and praying in 1 Corinthians. And we have a woman in the book of Romans, chapter 16, named Phoebe. And she's called a deacon. She's not called a deaconess. Deaconesses clean up communion cups in Baptist churches. She's a deacon. And a deacon deaked. They, they took care of churches. They taught, and they preached, and they cared for people alongside the elders. So we got Phoebe. So when Paul says, women have to be silent, we have to read it in the context of the Bible. There's got to be something going on here. And it's in the letter if we would bother reading it. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's a stuff about young widows. And I'm going to connect these young widows to a group of women in the Roman Empire. As for younger widows, do not put them on the list of widows who get free food. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. So that if they're on the widow's list, they can't get married. You know, you can't be a widow and married. That doesn't work. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they've made a pledge, because they have broken their pledge. Besides, they get in the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, have children, and manage their homes. Now remember that. Now listen to this verse in 1 Timothy 2. He's talking about these widows. He says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Why? He's talking about widows who are yapping and don't know what they're talking about. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. When? How long? Always? No, until she's taught. Because the point of this, a woman should learn. Once she's learned, she doesn't have to be silent. That's the context of these verses. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, who's going to say that? I'll clarify that in a minute. Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Is it likely that Paul is blaming all sin on a woman? Very unlikely. But women, now listen to this. This is, a, this is one of the weirdest verses of the Bible. This is a, a squawking blue parakeet. But women will be saved through childbearing. Really? You've got to have babies to get saved? If they continue in faith. Why? Here's what's going on in the Roman Empire at the time Paul's writing this letter in Ephesus. There's a group of women that we now call the New Roman Woman. And they were notoriously sexually provocative. That's why Paul tells women in 1 Timothy 2, just before this, to be modest. Because there are women in his world who are immodest. They were known for going from house to house and talking, and yapping, and teaching, and they barged their way into public sessions, and took over sessions, and argued with people, and they didn't know what they were talking about. Paul sees the new new Roman women as influencing the young widows at the church, and so when he tells women to be silent, he's talking about widows who are inclined to join the new Roman women movement, who don't know what they're talking about. He wants them to be instructed. And what was notorious is that they didn't believe in sex with men. Um, They didn't believe in having children. So they were famous for abortifacients, abortions in the first century. So when Paul says have babies, he's actually saying abortion is wrong. So if you're into the abortion issue, you've got New Testament evidence for what's going on. 
and and they were they believed that males were inferior to females they had taken over the temple of diana and males were castrated became eunuchs and they were in submission to the women in the temple that's the context so when paul says women must be silent he can't be talking about all women all the time or he's living a contradiction because priscilla's teaching phoebe's a deacon there's one more to talk about too and then you've got um women in first corinthians 11 he can't be talking about total silence it's got to be a restricted silence first timothy 5 i believe clarifies the context it's about younger widows who are uh tempted to join the new roman women gadding about from house to house talking about something they don't know about Myths and genealogies is how talks, uh, Paul brings it up in 1 Timothy 1. So the silence is restricted to a group of people who are tempted, and Paul's instruction is for them to learn submissively until they know what to talk about, and then we won't have this problem. Now, to also, just briefly explain, women didn't have access to a lot of the education. Yeah. And, and so Paul may have also been referring to that, that, that yeah. listen, before you teach the Scriptures... Learn to read, learn yeah. to be instructed. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it is. I, I think it's a fair uh, surmisal of the evidence that we have. We don't have a lot of evidence that in the Jewish world, women uh, were not educated anywhere near as much as men were. So it was rare for a man to read, one out of ten, extraordinarily rare for a man to write. It would have been even more so for women to read or to write. There are, there are two women mentioned in all the rabbinic documents who could read and write. There are some negative statements made about women. Uh, one rabbi who's a hard head anyway, uh, he's the sort of guy you wouldn't want to have for dinner at all. Uh, you know, unless you just said, forgot, uh, we forgot, sorry, you had to go home. Um, uh, who said that uh, anyone who teaches his daughter knowledge of Torah teaches her sexual promiscuity uh but and so we repeat that text but it's it that is very rare and there was a common jewish prayer that some people have quoted about thank you lord for not making me a woman yeah. there was so, so there was yeah. so to, just to push back a bit you're much more of a scholar on this than i am but there were some parts of the jewish culture that were definitely not pro-woman that's right and i think that's fair to say that the the prayer that we have uh, is later than the new testament but it seems to be reflected in Galatians 3 when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male and female. That seems to reflect that prayer. So it could, clearly there would have been Jews, Romans and Greeks, who had very negative views of women. Paul's not one of them. I'm anticipating about three hours of questions right now from, our, from the group here. And so I, do, I want to open it up early what, here. But one Go more. Ahead. One more comment. We, have to we talk want to have about, some questions in just a moment from we you. We have to talk about Junia. My friend, Junia. Is that okay? Yeah, totally. All right. Open your Bibles. You've got to see this. This is amazing. Romans chapter 16. And you're, you just wrote a short e-book on I this have a very topic that. that I would really recommend. It's on Kindle, uh, iTunes, all the places that you would download an e-book on this very topic. I would really, if you want some further reading on this Yeah, on it's this called lady. Junia is Not Alone. All right. Romans 16, 7 says... Greet Andronica and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. All right, here's what's happened. The word Junia is a woman. That's a female name. Some of you have the word Junius in your Bible or in a footnote. That's a man's name. Right? There is no evidence in the Greek world or the Roman world that any man was ever called Junius. The only man's name that would be like it would be Junianus. All right, that's not the name here. Here's what happened. Junia was a woman, and she was considered a great apostle. That's what the New Testament teaches. In the 4th century, St. Chrysostom, who wasn't terribly positive about women, said, what a noble thing that any woman would be called a great apostle. 
So he saw her as a woman and as an apostle. This causes problems now that we've got women apostles. There's a little move we can make. Let's change her name to Junius. Now we got a man who's an apostle. And they killed poor Junia. Slater, right in the pages of the Bible. Then Martin Luther in the 16th, 15th century uh, made a very strong comment that this couldn't have been a woman because it was an apostle. So therefore it had to be a man. Junia remained dead until the early parts of the 20th century when scholars recognized, hey, by the way, there's this name named Junia, and she's in the footnotes of some of our Bibles. I wonder if maybe that was what Paul originally wrote. But it wasn't until the 1970s and 80s that we raised Junia from a footnote into the, back into the text where she originally was. And when that happened, we did a thoroughly good Christian thing. We killed Junius. And it's okay to kill a man who never existed. <laughs> they slayed the guy. And now he, this, is, this was a very sad move on the part of the church, struggling with women in churches to change the Bible in order to fit the practice that they preferred. This was a woman who is a relative of the Apostle Paul, who was called an apostle, and she was a great apostle, which meant she apostled. What do apostles do? They preach the gospel, and they plant churches, and they control or guide churches until they can get on their own. Junia did that in the first century. So the man who said, be silent, was not thinking of Junia. He was thinking of problematic women in the church. So Junia, uh, that's a very brief story of a very long story. And that is, it was a woman who was in the text who got put in a footnote and then erased from the footnote. And then they resurrected a non-existent man and put him in the text. And then they put him in the footnotes and put the woman in the text. And then eventually we had the courage to kill the guy. And I'm a, I'm a Mennonite Anabaptist pacifist and I, I love killing those kinds of men. <laughs> Wait, a Mennonite Anabaptist pacifist. Okay, all right, gotcha. Does that get me in trouble? No, not at all. A lot of confused looks, but I mean, it's not. <laughs> okay, so. Yes. The, in, the, in the small book that I wrote, here's the contention I'm making. I, I agree with every, I agree with what you've said. I agree that women have equal place in the church. What the tension seems to be, and I, I take it back to the Garden of Eden, where after the fall, before the fall, there seemed to be unity and mutual respect, mutual submission between Adam and Eve. They were both told to subdue. They were t- both told to rule and reign. But something happened after sin came into our world where there now was this contention, this friction, this competition. And, 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 and when, when, when he said to Eve, when God said to Eve, man's going to rule over you. And basically what he was saying, you're not going to like it. Man's going to rule over you. It wasn't, it wasn't a prescription. It was a prediction is the way I feel about that. Man's going to want to dominate you. He's talking to woman and all of womanhood. Man's going to want to dominate you. They're going to try to control you, and you're not going to like it. That wasn't a prescription of what God intended. It was a prediction. That's the contention I make. That's still the friction and the tension we feel in the room today. Well, what does that mean then? If everything you say is true, then we've got a lot of discussion to happen back at our local church. And, we, and I think you should. I think you should go back and re-examine everything you're saying and doing at your local church. We are. In the last year, I'm re-examining, rethinking, reimagining everything at our local church here. I haven't come to all the conclusions that I think you probably think I should come to yet, but I am determined to wrestle it to the ground. And, and, I, and I say this sincerely. The reason is not from any, I wish I could say it was from a scholarly conviction. It's, it's really not. It's because I have a 12-year-old daughter. That's really my conviction. I want the best for her, and I want it to be what God wants for her, right? So it, it involves scholarly pursuit. But my conviction is to want everything I want for Callie and my, and my wife, Pam. So I don't want them to feel thwarted at all in what God's called them to. 
So if I'm going to make an error, here's what we've decided as, as a church. If we're going to make any kind of error, we want to be true to Scripture and true to doctrine. We, we're very concerned about right doctrine. We're very concerned about Scriptures. We are. Never more so than now. We, and we must be, right? But if I'm going to make an error, if it comes to a place of judgment where I'm having to see Scripture and make a judgment based on inconclusive evidence in some cases, I want to make it on the error of liberating. If I have to stand before the Lord and give account, I'm going to say, Lord, I, I did everything I could to honor your scriptures. I love your word. Thank you for giving us the scriptures, breathing on them for us, giving them to us. But I, my intention was to liberate as many people as I could to do your work, to be all they, that you called them to be. That's where I was going to err, and I think I would get a good amen from the Lord on it. And uh, from me. And from you. Thank you. Um, You're not near as important than no, the Lord, but exactly I agree. Right. But um, I do appreciate I was it nonetheless. Say that. <laughs> um, the, I, I like where you went to Genesis 3.15 because I, I, don't, I agree totally. That's not prescription. That's description. This is what's going to happen. Because these two human beings, you know, Stanley Hauerwas said, no two human beings are compatible. <laughs> that was after marriage to a, he had to a very difficult woman. It was, it was horrible, and he, he lived this way in marvelous Christian charity. But that is a text that describes the war of wills. Your desire will be for him. That's the desire to control, and he will rule over you through his might. So this is a war of wills. Uh, you use the expression mutual submission uh, because of, in my world that I grew up in, I've, I've grown uh, to where I don't like to use the word submission because it tends to be coercion and force. I think that they lived in utter love for one another. And loving people serve one another. They, they do, uh, they serve, and that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 5. So I think you are exactly right. We need to be asking not what can, what can women not do in our churches? We need to ask this simple question. What did women do in the Bible? And then we have a chaser question. Do we let women do in our church what they did in the Bible? And if we don't, so we can ask this question. W-D-W-D. What did women do? There we go. Copyright. Right now, I got it. Copyright. Got it. It's on the printer right now as we speak. Okay. Thank you, Daniel. Get that sent. It's in my blue parakeet. WDWD. So you ask, what did women do? This is the first question. If we want to be Bible people, we first are going to ask, what did women do in the Bible? And if we're really Bible people, we're asking one another, do we allow women? Allow? Isn't that an interesting word? Allow. Do we allow women to do in our churches what they did then, or do we encourage them to do what God gives them the gifts to do? The, pro the problem with all of that is that m men are in charge of a lot of this. And this is the reason I feel like I was the one. I had a lot of women come to me and say, I've, I mean, I've had hundreds of women say to me via email, Twitter, personally, thank you, we need a guy to say this. We need a man to say this, because you guys are in charge of a lot of this, and for us to push our way up, we get called bad words. We get, uh, we get labels put upon us. Uh, we, we hate those labels. We're trying to be true to our calling. But men tend to hold the reins to a lot of this. And men, are, men have to be the ones that have to wrestle this to the ground first before women, I think. And, and Brady, I, I totally agree. And I learned this uh, through silence. I thought this was a battle for women to fight. And if I fought it for them it would just be propagating the male powerful position. And I've had numerous women come to me in the last 10 years and say, we have to have men fighting because they're the only voices that matter in a lot of contexts. So we need men to support women and to give women an opportunity for the blue parakeets to sing. All right? And when they sing, you know, you listen to Ann Graham Lotz and you say, she can preach. Right? When we give the platform to women, we encourage people to listen to women and to gain 
spiritually from women, and this begins to knock down boundaries. I'll tell you how the, the first experience, I grew up in a church that was totally against women in ministry. When they came home from missionary trips, where they were preaching, teaching, evangelizing, and planting churches, all they could do was give a report, but not from behind the pulpit. All right. That was the world I grew up in. When I was in seminary, I read a woman named, her name is Morna Hooker, a brilliant New Testament scholar. I was working on my PhD in Cambridge, England, and I was on my bicycle one day from downtown over to the library. And I pulled up at the stop sign, and next to me on a bicycle was Morna Hooker. And I said, hi. Hi, Professor Hooker. She is such a great person. And as we were riding along together, I was saying to myself, I have learned so much from her. My view of the Bible has been shaped by that woman. And all the shackles fell off of me right there. I said, it's over. No more gymnastics. I don't care if it wasn't behind a pulpit. She taught me the Bible. And some people say, John Piper is like this. I, I, I don't want to use names, so I'll use initials. We've never heard of him. <laughs> so um, he says that as long as it's not personal, etc., cetera, uh, and that it is non-authoritative, women can't, can't preach from behind the pulpit because that becomes personal, etc. Like that. But, but they'll, he'll read books by women. All right, now... I think that this is hypocritical. And I don't mind saying so. I've said it on my blog. I've said it before. If you think women can't teach, you should never read a book by a woman or learn from a woman because they're teaching you. To take that, that's ex- taking the complementarian view to an extreme is just, it is really hard to get there intellectually. You're right. This is, where I've, this is why I wrote the book. And there, we have a lot of complementarians part of our congregation, and they were upset with me when I wrote the book. Some of them left. Some of them got really aggravated with me. And I said, listen, take it to the extreme. Take your viewpoint to the extreme. Uh, you can't teach. What, what age did your son become when you can't teach your son anymore then? Because he's now a man, and you're a woman. When, when do you, you can't get there intellectually. But gymnastics then happens when they start putting it behind. It's just behind the pulpit. That's not in the New Testament. It's either they can't teach or they can't. Are you telling me the word pulpit is not in the New Testament? I'm telling you that. Right? <laughs> wow. Was, and it certainly wasn't a round, flat one. <laughs> it doesn't tilt back. I thought it was one of the sacraments. Baptism. Yeah. Pulpit. Pulpit. Yeah, I thought it was all a part Lord's there. Supper. I'm learning so much today. All right. So let's open up some questions. I want to hear some questions. Um, and okay, I, it, men or women, it doesn't matter. And, but I, I, I would say that if, Come on, you, ladies. if you are hesitant about women in ministry, I would urge you as a biblical person to ask what women did in the Bible and do, do you approve of that? All right, you look very eager to ask a question. Here's, take the microphone right there. Thanks. Okay. Um, what do we do? If we're in the church that is not agreeing with what you guys say, but we really feel like God has gifts inside of us to speak, to lead, to teach, to do these things, I'm allowed to give an offering message that's one minute long behind the pulpit, and they love every time. She does so great with offering and communion, but I'm not allowed to do anything else. And so I've just said, okay, Lord. I'll wait on you, but I wonder from your perspective, how do you approach a pastor with that? I'm, I'm going to answer your question as if you were my daughter, all right? I say, hun, find another congregation <laughs> where you can be your, who God's called you to be and do it gracefully. Don't be combative. Don't be divisive. Don't be contentious because none of us, we are not called to be divisive, contentious. I, I, would, I would go to them and talk to them and, and speak, let them listen to the podcast and just ask for conversation. Just say, I just want to have a conversation. 
And I think sometimes women have to over-apologize sometimes. I don't want to be divisive. I don't want to be the Jezebel, all those things. Listen, just, just ask the question just the way you asked me. If you, if you were in my office asking the question the way you just asked it, I'd, that's the most gracious question that I've heard. That's a beautiful way of asking the question. At the end of the day, uh, you're called uh, to, to you. We're all called to be submitted to authority. We are. That's the local church is governed by authority. But I also think you have to find a family that you can thrive in. And um, it doesn't mean that you're ever independent. I don't think that independence is a sign of the kingdom. Like we, there's a king, there's a rule, there's a, there's a law. There's, all those things have to be talked about, I think, more, even better, more, more so. But I think at the end of the day, I would, I would tell Callie the advice I would give my daughter if she were living in another city and she called me with that question. I would say, Callie, be very prayerful, be very humble, be very kind, ask the question, and then pray some more. And I would support her um, moving to a congregation where she could thrive. Or if God called her there to be a voice of change, I'd tell her to be a humble, submitted, prayerful voice of change in that congregation. That's what I would ask her to do. And I, w- and I have had to deal with this a lot in my life because I advocate for women in ministry and ordination. And a lot of women find themselves gifted to do these things in churches that won't recognize those gifts. And so I, 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 I echo what, what uh, Brady said. You know, a lot of women want to stay and, and patiently see if they can affect change. Churches change slowly, just in case you haven't noticed. And so if you have the patience for that, uh, that's the secret. Now, the other thing I would only add to Brady this is never make it a case of justice. Justice is going to raise red flags. Uh, make it a case of discussion about the Bible. And then I would also say uh, women have to be good. Not great, but good. And if they're good at what they do in teaching and small groups, it will be recognized by others. And then you've built, in a sense, a platform or a beachhead for an opportunity. And my, uh, my story is a former student I had it when I was teaching at, at another seminary um, took a church. She was a part of a church in Iowa, Reformed community, uh, the Christian Reformed Church. And she realized after a while that she had gifts for teaching. She taught Sunday school and the place filled up. And when, other, when the men taught, no one came. And then it would fill up. And they said, hey, she's a pretty good teacher. The men were saying this. So after a while, they made her a, um, she was a part of the staff. I think she was a staff member. For seven and a half years, she was a staff member. She was preaching. She was doing different things. They let her preach on Sundays, and they had a couple sites, so she would go to different churches. After seven and a half years, she came in to the pastor and said, I'd like to change my JV uniform in for a varsity uniform. It's time to call me pastor. And they did. But it was her time, her opportunity, to show that she was gifted by God for these things. In a humble way, she helped men in their Christian living. And that convinced them. That's one way. That's a good story. There are a lot of bad stories that I have to tell you. So there are some times when you just have to say, time to pack it up and go where, where they'll recognize women. And Scott, you made a great point because when this book came out, it's just only been out a few months here at New Life. Uh, a lot of our, we, have, we, we call women pastors here on our staff. They are. They, they do the work of the pastoral ministry. They're pastors. Good. Uh, and, but a lot of them came to me and said, well, when am I going to get to preach? When am I going to get to teach? And I, I said to them, I said, now, the book wasn't, didn't say because you're a woman you get to teach. <laughs> the book said because you're a teacher who is a woman you get to teach. There's a big distinction. So please, I think he made a great point. Don't go demand something because you're a woman. Go ask for something because you're called to do it. So let's put gender aside and say, first of all, so I've said to a couple of young women on our staff, I said, well, are you teaching somewhere? I'd love to hear you teach. I'd love to maybe help you become a better teacher. But I'm not going to put you up there on Sunday morning until I've 
until you've gone through the same training, learning process that everyone else goes through. Recognition. The recognition of it. So let your gifts make room for yourself. Uh, If you have the gift of teaching, here's what I told every one of them. If you have the gift of teaching, we will recognize it. And you won't get docked because you're a woman. It doesn't matter to me if you're a man or a woman. What I want to see is, are you learning? Are you reading? Are you prayerful? Are you studying? Are you crafting? Because teaching and preaching is a craft that has to be honed. You just don't wake up one day and can stand before an audience and learn to take, guide them through scriptures or teach them things. It's a, it's a skill and a craft that needs to be developed. So don't go demand it suddenly. Well, Pastor Brady said, you need to let me teach. I'm a woman. I did not say that. What I said was, if you're a teacher who is a woman, you should be allowed to teach. I, and I think there's a big yeah, distinction there. That's so. good. I, li- I like that. That's good. Back here. Back here. Yeah. I can't see very well. I am a single young female in the worship industry. And I would like to be mentored by another female um, that is kind of in more of my skill set. However, my issue is that there are not very many women in the worship industry in churches that are in the worship and arts director role. Um, what would be your advice if I was your daughter or your daughter? <laughs> what, yeah. what would your next step be? Yeah. Well, first of all, mentoring doesn't have to always happen one-on-one. So it can be with men. And for John Egan, who oversees all of our worship, he mentors a lot of young women in worship. We just do it in group settings, so it's safer for everyone. So we do it in small groups, so it can be conversational, relational, because discipleship at its core needs to be conversational, relational, intentional, all those words. It can be done in small groups. So you don't, don't wait around for the, the woman to come into your life to mentor you. Just find mentors. Find whoever they are. And, and just make sure that if you are going to be mentored by a man who you see as mature in his gifting. Make sure it's done in group settings with, like I talked about last night, with protective environments around you. Um, and, and maybe, I know John, he's over in the other uh, breakout right now talking about worship. I may have him touch on that in one of his breakouts. How, does, uh, how, do, y- how do men in the worship world mentor women? And, um, because it's, it's super important. It's, we, we're, just, we're dying, looking, longing to flood our stage with more women who, who have been mentored and trained to lead. And so it's just taken time to catch up. We're, we're, the church is 20 years behind where it should be right now with women. And it, like I'm, I'm, I'm already getting the emails. Where are all the women at the conference then? You know, I got that immediately when the book came out because the same time my book came out, we were announcing the conference here. And of course, a lot of the speakers are men. I got immediately the email. And I said, listen, hold it, stop it. We planned the conference a year ago. I wrote the book two months ago. Let me catch up. Give me breath, all right? I want it I'm catching up. I'm pr- I will practice what I preach. I, I, or I'm a hypocrite. We, we, we do want the voice of woman. But the local church has not produced a lot of women who are leading right now. And, and so let's get that. Let's don't get the cart before the horse. Let's get women elevated in the local church so that they are invited to come teach us how to lead. Let's, it's going to take time. Don't be impatient with me. I'm not hypocritical. I, I believe what I say, and but give time. Let it nurture. Let it grow. Let it flourish. Let it let it breathe. We're we're. Uh, I know. I know. If I were a woman, I would say we got to fix this now. And I've been waiting on the sideline forever. And now it's time to get in the game. Um, and I agree with you. I understand your frustration with it. But give us time. We're working toward it. It's, we're, we're methodical and intentional about raising up the voice of woman in every sphere of our church. And it just takes time. And, and we're, we're on it for the next 20 years. Come back and check in with me 20 years and see if I haven't done what I said I'm going to do. So save your email. All right. All right. Any more questions? Well, I, I was going to say, uh, you might try to look out on, and, and do some canvassing of women who are in worship directors. I know Willow Creek has Becky Johnson, uh, and maybe someone like that would de- you could develop a relationship with. So you can look around for women. I mean, if you're insistent, there are some things that women worship directors are going to encounter that men are never going to see. I've been around men my whole life. I know. And my wife's a psychologist, and she reminds me of these things. So I, I would say if you, if you need to find women for particularly things that you want to hear a woman's voice on, 
I think they're out there, but you may have to dig around. But I know Becky Johnson at Willow Creek is a worship director. Okay, we got maybe a couple more questions. Brady over here. Yep, right. Brandon, go ahead. I, uh, I'm, I'm a complementarian. I'll admit it. My name's Jeff, and I'm a complementarian. Um, Hi, Jeff. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm, I, I agree it can be taken to an extreme. So can the egalitarian. I'm a dime store theologian, so... Um, my question that, that you didn't cover is, you know, Scripture says Christ is the head of the body, and likewise man is the head of the family unit is the way I look at it. Yeah, Ephesians 5 actually was the next Scripture on my list here. Do you, I, I'm just text. curious, and I'm open-minded to the egalitarian side of it. I, for me, if it doesn't mess with the person or work of Christ, it's not going to hurt me too bad. So uh, She just, might. Yes, and I hate. So just talk yeah, a little bit about the, that. The scripture is this, Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. So now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit their husbands and everything. And that's obviously, of all the scriptures we read, that probably is the most, he, most hotly debated about headship. And, and so I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I know where you stand on it, so I'll just tell you where I stand, and you can disagree or agree. I think headship has uh, been misidentified and misinterpreted. Mis, mis, um, if I read Ephesians 5, I'm, I've read this scripture thousands of times, and I've tried to read it through the lens of being my wife married to me or a woman as a part of new life. And when I read it this way, when it says, as the church submits to Christ, and it says, if the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, when I think about Christ being the head of the church, and he is the head of new life, the, the head of new life and all of the church is Christ. Christ was sacrificial, serving, protective, covering. All of those things can be said of Jesus. He wasn't manipulative, controlling, dominating, domineering. He, wasn't, he, didn't, he didn't wave the boss stick over our head all the time. He's, he's, he's long-suffering. So I do think men, I, think, I do think there's the distinction between genders. That we can, I wish we had another hour to talk about that. There is a distinction between genders in the scriptures and roles of genders. I just think they all have to look like Christ. Both men and women have to look like Jesus at the end of the day, the best we know how. I'm the head of my home, but I've never told Pam that in 24 years. But if you ask her who the head of the home is, she would say, well, Brady is. Jesus is. Through Brady and through, the, we do it together. But I've never told her that. I don't, we don't ever bring it up. Because we do everything together. We're in unity with one another. And I, what, I, what I said in my book, the way I described headship was, is I'm willing to take responsibility at the end of the day for what Pam and I decided together. And I think that's what happens in the local church. I think elders, whether you agree or, or not, there's going to be disagreements between men, elders, women, elders. If I, the way we define elders is covering and headship. So we say, I would say 98.9% of the decisions at New Life are made with women in another room. Women are always in the room with every big decision we make here. It's just at the end of the day, I'm willing to take responsibility for it as, as the senior pastor. With you, well, as the male, though, I'm willing to take responsibility for it and to provide a safe place for all of us to express our views. It's the way I see this. And so headship is not dominance. It's not lording it over anyone. Like Peter said, I've called you to be overseers, not lording it over those, but, but serving because you're called to do it, First Peter 5. I see that as headship. And there's a lot of definitions of it. I'd love to hear your definition yeah. of it. Um, what I hear from complementarians is to explain that the man's role, I don't like the word role, but their man's role is to lead the family, all right? Here's my comments about that. First of all, the word submit is used by Paul, and the word submit means to live in an orderly fashion. It doesn't mean to control or to rule. Uh, submitting is about learning to live within the order. But he says we should submit to one another, and then he begins to give, that's the thematic verse, in verse 21, he gives illustrations. First, wives. Second, husbands. They're really illustration of what it means to submit to one another. All right. The wives are to submit to their husbands, etc. So we have this word headship. 
But the, the, the tendency of complementarians is to take the word headship and then use the word leader. All right? Precisely not what Paul says. He then describes how husbands are to lead, be heads of their wife. How are they to lead their wives? Love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church. Okay, now, this is nice. We all agree with love. But what does love mean? He gave himself for her to make her holy. So the husband's model is Christ in his sacrificial giving of himself for his wife. So headship for a male is self-sacrificing service for my wife. My responsibility is not to lead my wife, but to love her by giving myself to her and for her. So if that's what is meant by complementarian, I'm quite happy with it. But the tendency in Piper's book was to talk about leadership. Tim Keller's book with his wife was about love and relationship. When Kathy Kathy Keller wrote that chapter in that book they wrote about marriage, which I think is a fine book about marriage, she emphasized a loving relationship. If if the language moves in the direction of hierarchy, we're not in touch with the gospel. The gospel deconstructs hierarchy for service to one another. Good. Okay, quick follow-up. Do we have the mic back there? Then we we probably need to... to. Hupatasso. Well, hupatasso is the word submit. It's not so much ranking under. It's to live in an orderly fashion within an order. It's to live in an orderly. There's an order. Toxis. I don't want my family to be likened to an army. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, there's, well yeah, Paul doesn't in, bring up church government. Yeah, even in church government, elders are here to serve, to be, to, to, it's the same. Husband, elders, synonymous with the same calling. Is local church, sure. local family. This is what Paul was saying, I think. Local church, local family should be led or, or orderly way, and there are people who take responsibility for that. And I think that's what elders and husbands should do, is take responsibility for the orderly conduct of our home. Not, I'm not the boss I'm just taking responsibility for my home to be orderly, and that means my wife thriving and my daughter thriving and that all of us thriving. So, hey, I know this is like a gigantic question, right? And so we could go on and on. Thank you so much, God, for tackling it with us. Thank you. I I really do, I mean this sincerely, I do appreciate uh, Scott in so many ways. God has spent decades studying. And you don't have to agree with Scott. One of the, one of the distinctives we want at our New Life Conference, last year we had Eugene Peterson here. Uh, this year we wanted Scott because I, I want to hear the voice of the theologian. I want to hear the voice of the scholar so we don't drift too far from where we're supposed to be. And Scott is, does an amazing job of presenting things that make you at least go home. And you got a lot to talk about. If nothing else at this conference, I just gave you about six months of conversation back at your local church. All right. God bless you. Lord bless our food and our time. Enjoy your lunch. We'll see you this afternoon at our breakouts, all right?